Hello, this is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And this episode, we're talking about an unsung auteur. He's kind of sung. He's yeah. had a movie based about him. Ed Wood. What are we going to say about Ed Wood that hasn't been said already? Are we going to have a lot of laughs at his expense? Listen, I don't know if you know this, but the flying saucers in his movies are actually little models held by strings. Now, Ed Wood is someone that Will Sloan is obsessed with? Yes, I would say that. And where did this start, Will? Oh, um, well, you know, Ed Wood is, if you don't know, commonly regarded as the worst filmmaker of all time. And that's based on? On a book called The Golden Turkey Awards by Harry and Michael Medved. Michael Medved, who later became uh, the country's most famous right-wing movie critic. Uh, But they they wrote a book called The 50 Worst Films of All Time in 1978. And at the end of the book, it had a little ballot that readers could submit their choices for the worst movie of all time to be published in a later book. And so in 1980, they published this book called The Golden Turkey Awards, where they crowned Plan 9 from Outer Space, the worst movie ever made, and Ed Wood, the worst director of all time. So I think I first learned about him because I asked my dad what's the worst movie of all time when I was six. And he said Plan 9 from Outer Space? Because this was after the Tim Burton movie came out. So I think by that point, it was like well known. So I, I saw it when I was six or seven. And, you know, it leaves an impression on you. It was a movie that I never watched in my youth at all. And I don't know where this came from. Maybe it was my uh, being isolated geographically in my growing years or my kind of distaste at first with Mystery Science Theater 3000. And the whole culture of ironic film viewing. Yeah, I was never a fan of that. Like the idea of people making fun of a movie and getting joy of how bad the filmmakers did a job always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Well, you know what? You're just a corporate chill, you know? (laughs) You'll, You'll just eat whatever slop they feed you. All right. It was all about Tarantino (laughs) and Christopher Nolan and that guy, Richie. I can't wait to see what he does with his career. Love him. So I actually only saw Plan 9 from Outer Space a few years ago. And the second time I watched it was today with Will Sloan. And we also watched Glenn or Glenda today, Mm -hmm. uh, Ed Wood's other masterpiece. I think uh, in my life, Ed Wood... There's been an evolution, I think, in my understanding of Ed Wood. When you're a kid, you like Ed Wood because, you know, the special effects are bad and the the tombstones fall over and the flying saucers are on strings. And, you know, like when you're a kid and you and you don't have a great sense of judgment about movies, you can point to this and be like, this is bad. Mm -hmm. It is technically poor. (laughs) I am superior to it as an eight year old. Exactly. (laughs) But I think. Uh, growing up, what I appreciate about Edward's movies now, I mean, there are a lot of things I appreciate about Edward's movies, and we'll get to them. More than anything, I like the Boulevard of Broken Dreams quality to his movies. All his movies end with filmed in Hollywood, USA uh, during the end credits. And I mean, his movies really are filmed in Hollywood, USA. So you've got this weird tapestry of characters. There are three kinds of actors in his movies. There are faded movie stars like Bela Lugosi or Lyle Talbot. There are Los Angeles novelty celebrities like the amazing Criswell and uh, Vampira and Bunny Breckenridge. And then there are these wannabes like Dolores Fuller, uh, his fiance, or Paul Marco as the irrepressible comedy relief. And how could you have forgotten the greatest star out of all of Ed Wood's films, Tor Johnson? Oh, the super Swedish angel, the 400-pound <laughs> Swedish wrestler. He's great. He, I, I'd put him under novelty celebrities. Every time that uh, Tor Johnson's face came up when we were watching the movie, Will would go, look at that face. <laughs> you can read so much into that face. Yeah, he's like uh, Maria Falconetti in uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. <laughs> <laughs> but you, there are these three categories of actors who are 
for some reason together in this universe and they have no business being in the same movie together they're all these different spheres of la but they're all kind of sad <laughs> and they're all thrown together and his movies just evoke kind of the sad underbelly of los angeles this you know faded failed showbiz world and i mean his movies just in general kind of feel like they were thrown together out of a lot of disparate elements that Ed Wood had lying around. Whether it be stock footage mm-hmm. or a skeleton he had in his closet. Yeah, or, you know, some faded actor that he got, like Bella Lugosi. They feel like Gregory Walcott, the star of one of his, of his movies, once said, I think of Ed Wood as being like a junk collector. You know, he picked up something and picked up something else and tied it together with spit and a dream and so, said, this is my work. So let's get a little bit biographical with Ed Wood. Where did he start? How did he get to L.A.? Where he spent the rest of his life. This is going to be one of those episodes probably where you ask me a lot of questions. <laughs> that is, is absolutely what this episode's going to be. I'm going to ma- interject with a few jokes now and then, <laughs> but it's mostly going to be the Will Sloan show. Edward was born in Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, he apparently had a very normal kind of suburban childhood, except that his mother always wanted a girl, and so she dressed him up like a girl. And this would be the birth of his transvestitism and Angora fetish. He loved fluffy Angora sweaters that would be with him for the rest of his life. I feel like Edward's sexuality is an area that I'm still not entirely clear about. Because he would say that he was straight as an arrow as far as wanting to sleep with women. Yes, but on the other hand, he's somebody who liked to go out on the town dressed as a woman and seemed to kind of, you know, when you read his novels, uh, he wrote over a hundred kind of paperback novels, and there's a scenario that recurs in a lot of them of, transvestites kind of tricking men into thinking they're women. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think there's a sense that he kind of got off on that. But also all his movies have this weird fear of uh, transgressing the gender binary. Yeah, especially Glenn and Glenda, which we'll get into a little bit later. And so from there, how did he get to L.A.? Well, he uh, served in the war uh, in the Marines, I believe. Uh, He fought in the South Pacific. He fought in the Battle of Tarawa. Uh, He fought in D-Day. But... Underneath his combat fatigues, what was he wearing? He was wearing some negligee. Brawn panties. And he said that he would have rather been killed than been injured. Because if he got injured, then the medic would see what he was wearing under his uniform. And probably would have killed him there. <laughs> so from the war, he moved directly to L.A.? I think so. I'm a little, I'm a little shaky on that timeline. I know that he worked in a, in a circus at one point, worked in a carnival freak show at one point. He wrote a lot of novels about the carnival, yeah. <laughs> like dozens of them. It was an experience that lingered with him, but he definitely had a dream of going to Hollywood. And when he went to Hollywood, he started this commercial company with a guy, a business partner, Crawford John Thomas, and they made commercials for early television. And they made an uncompleted Western in the late 40s called... Uh, crossroads of laredo and basically edward left before it was finished and their business partnership dissolved acrimoniously Mm -hmm. Uh, but he definitely had filmmaking ambitions and he was a a person that was always very passionate i mean people listening to this have probably seen the tim burton film edward which is great and we highly recommend it but i think that's something that separates edward from the other hackmeisters is that he really wanted to do well It wasn't just a money-making scheme for him. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of directors maybe go into the business being passionate about movies, but it gets to the point where, yeah, I'm I'm making a low-budget horror movie on a certain schedule, have to to pump it out there. Like the way that Roger Corman talks about some of his early movies. Mm -hmm. Ed Wood, you know, 
every movie he made seemed to be his darling. <laughs> yeah, it, everyone was better than the last. And he also was passionate about film. Like, anyone who knew him knew that he loved Bela Lugosi horror movies. He loved Buck Jones westerns. Uh, he loved all the stuff that he saw as a kid. So he worked, though, at Universal Studios as a gopher. And it's a funny story. He was apparently, he was on the set of Abbott and Costello in the Foreign Legion. And he was so fascinated that they had real sand. And they had real camels. <laughs> There's a rumor also that he was a stuntman in drag in a Samuel Fuller picture. Yeah, the Baron of Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) And from there, it was just skyrocketing to the top, wasn't it? Well, the story of Glenn or Glenda... Uh, Do you know anything about how how it came about? Well, I do, but pretend I don't, and you tell the listener out there. I feel like I'm really bogarting this episode. (laughs) Uh, Will Sloan's Ed Wood. So in the early 50s, uh, Christine Jorgensen became the first, or maybe at least the first high-profile case of a sex change operation, formerly Chris Jorgensen, who became Christine Jorgensen, an unscrupulous movie producer named George Weiss, uh, a real bottom-of-the-barrel kind of Z-grade producer was going to make a movie about Christine Jorgensen. And he wanted her to star in the movie, right. didn't he? But then she wanted a lot of money for the rights of it. And so he said, ah, fuck you. We're, we're just going to make a, a generic sex change movie. And Well, I mean, he maybe thought he was making a generic well, sex change movie. Thought, but Ed Wood, who didn't have a lot of filmmaking experience, he'd done some shorts, he'd done some commercials, and he directed some theater in L.A. But he came to George Weiss and said, I am the most qualified man in town to direct this film because I've lived it uh, very dramatically. And that didn't sell George Weiss. But what did sell George Weiss was uh, Edward knew Bella Lugosi. <laughs> and Bella Lugosi, for people who haven't seen the film, gives a tour de force performance <laughs> as God. Uh, yeah, the puppet master. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's his famous line? Pull the strings! Pull the strings! <laughs> and my favorite is that it's over the uh, footage of Buffalo running. <laughs> yeah. Edward got to know Bela Lugosi through another business partner of his, Alex Gordon, who's kind of the Herman J. Mankiewicz to his Orson Welles. <laughs> um, and Bela Lugosi was, of course, very down on his luck at this time, 20 years after Dracula, uh, morphine addicted. We talked about while we were watching these movies that, like, no one has had a quicker career fall than Bela Lugosi. Yeah. Like, he went from Dracula to nothing, pretty much. Basically, like making B-movies at Monogram within and, a few years. And he continued with Universal Horror Pictures, but at that point, Universal Horror Pictures were in the gutter. Like, they were almost Poverty Row pictures. All those, like, House of Frankenstein movies and the other Monster Rally pictures. I mean, it's, it's an amazing career because he had Dracula that came out in, like, February 1931. Uh, huge star. And then Frankenstein, which he turned down came out in basically, I think, October or November 1931. Immediately, Boris Karloff, you know, superseded him as the horror the horror go-to guy. And in Tim Burton, uh, they show <laughs> Bela Lugosi hating on Boris Karloff, which was supposedly not true in real life. But, I mean, I think in real life, Bela Lugosi resented Boris Karloff. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I don't know if you call him a cocksucker. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, there's a funny story, I don't remember what movie it is, where Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff were acting in the picture, and Boris Karloff was getting, like, ten times more than Bela Lugosi was getting. That's so... I mean, at that point, it just gets down to bad management. I yeah. Mean, like... Bela Lugosi didn't even get much money for the movies where he was like a big star. Uh, Bela Lugosi, I think, was actually bankrupt the year after Dracula. So clearly he was not a good businessman. So, (laughs) and leading into that, he started working with Ed Wood. Yeah, so the movie he made before Glenn or Glenda was called Bela Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. (laughs) 
So. Oh, that's the classic um, Duke Mitchell <laughs> and Sammy Petrillo. <laughs> the uh, um, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis imitators. I love Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. <laughs> Do you? It is. Yeah, it's great. It's a treat. Uh, so anyway, he was very down on his luck. And I think he, for Glenn or Glenda, he basically got $1,000 for one day's work, being the omnipotent puppet master who pulls the strings and... Uh, deliver some pseudo profundities about uh, mankind uh, there, it's really not clear what function he serves he's in a laboratory and he's like he's got beakers and he's got some voodoo skulls behind him there's a skeleton on the wall i assume he's mis- uh, i assume he's mixing up puppy dog tails yeah. and other stuff because he keeps saying that over and over again uh, uh beware of the big green dragons that sits at your doorstep <laughs> he eats little boys Snips and snails and puppy duck tails. Uh, so Glenn and Glenda, Glenn is, or Glenda, Glenn or Glenda is almost incomprehensible. It has kind of a loose narrative. It's basically about two case studies of sexual diversity. Um, it, first of all, it has two layers of narration. It almost has three layers of narration. Kind of. I mean, it has it, it has Bella Lugosi as the puppet master, and then it has um, Lyle Talbot as uh, a, a police inspector who goes to visit a, a psychiatrist to talk about transvestitism um, after because he's investigating the case of a transvestite who killed himself, and then uh, they have this. The inspector and the psychiatrist have this like really bizarre. Uh, roundabout conversation full of the pompous dialogue that only Edward could write. And it has lines in it like, um, uh, the inspector says, I'd like to hear the story to the fullest. And the doctor says, only the infinity of the depths of a man's mind can really tell the story. <laughs> but the story, it turns out, is about Glenn, uh, who's uh, just a normal guy. Played by Edward. Played by Edward himself. Uh, and he's engaged to Barbara, a charming and lovely girl, as we're told. Played by Dolores Fuller? Yes. The uh, girlfriend of Edward at the time, mm-hmm. who was not a big fan of him dressing up in girls' clothes. And she's a terrible actress. I think she's got presents. Sure. So Glenn and Barbara are engaged to be married. They're, they're in love. But Glenn is hiding a big secret. He likes to wear women's clothing. But the way this is structured is you see, like, Glenn... Right off the bat, dresses Glenda walking around. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he lives a double life. There's his life with, with Barbara, and then there's his life wandering around town dressed as Glenda, looking in uh, stores. Uh, and you'd think the story would have a beginning, a middle, and an end, but it doesn't really. Well, it has a beginning, and then it has a, a middle where that's kind of a weird dream sequence where uh, it, it's full of all the kind of... Freudian symbolism that, that carried a lot of currency at the time. And for 10 minutes, there's a bunch of BDSM footage that the producer put into the movie. Yeah, that Edward had nothing to do with. But there's this weird dream sequence where the devil is there and all the people in Glenn's life are laughing at him. It, it, I like how you pointed out, you were like, there's that girl we haven't seen and that guy. Really? Well, I think we were to infer that there are people from Glenn's life, but we've never seen them before. Uh, and then eventually... Uh, Glenn comes clean to Barbara and she accepts him. But even so, they go to the psychiatrist and find out that the only reason that Glenn has created his Glenda persona is because he didn't get enough love as a child. And so he's created this persona to compensate for it. And over time, he derives that love from Barbara. And so he doesn't need to be a transvestite anymore. That is a problematic ending. Uh, I mean, there's a a weird tension in the movie between the fact that, you know, Edward is an enthusiastic transvestite and the whole movie is a plea for tolerance for transvestitism. But 
at the end of the day, he's saying it was a mental abnormality. It it feels like the producer, George Weiss, was like, "Mm, we need this ending at the end there. Yeah, or maybe uh, the the censorship regulations wouldn't let uh, um, an unambiguously positive depiction (laughs) of transvestitism come across. But then there's a second case study, Alan and slash Anne. (laughs) Which appears when you think the movie is over. (laughs) And it occupies like maybe 10 minutes of the movie, and it seems like kind of an afterthought. This is about an actual transgender person who, similar to Glenn, didn't get a lot of love uh, growing up, goes off and fights in the army. But while he's in the army, he's wearing uh, women's undergarments under his fatigues. So, she, you know, a little bit of a autobiographical. Yeah, shades of it, shades of it. And, and then after the war is over and we get a lot of stock footage of the war. <laughs> I would call that production value, Will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after the war, he learns that great things are being done with the sex change overseas he gets a sex change uh and now that he's a woman he has to act the part of a woman so he learns how to walk like a woman and he learns how to comb his comb her hair like a woman she learns to attract men like a woman she learns to dress like a woman and i think what's kind of interesting about it is it's a movie that's ostensibly about gender fluidity and it's a plea for tolerance for sexual diversity but this story about Alan slash Anne reinforces the gender binary. It's, Completely. It's like... A- he loved to clean and to do the dishes at home. Yeah, so after he becomes a woman, he has to conform to the role of a woman. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of the tension in this movie. I mean, the movie is undeniably more cr- progressive than most movies of its time. But at the same time, I don't know, Edward, I think in all his movies, kind of has a discomfort about the gender binary. I think he associates transgressing the gender binary i think he's afraid of it Mm -hmm. Uh, you can see it in there's a later movie he he did called the love feast much further in his porno-ish days (laughs) it's a semi-pornographic movie that he stars in and it ends with a bunch of women putting a dog collar on him and making him dress in a negligee and lick their boots that's an example of his gender being undermined to humiliate him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that recurs in his novels as well. So this film is interesting also because it's his most personal work right off the bat, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, the screenwriters of Tim Burton's Ed Wood talked about the conflict they had where Glenn and Glenda in the movie version would appear last. Mm-hmm. Like he does these like horror pictures and science fiction pictures and finally he expresses himself. Right. But it actually came right at the beginning of his career. And to their credit, they stuck with they know, did, how yeah. it actually happened. It was a very personal film because Dolores Fuller, who plays his girlfriend, uh, has said that she didn't know the full extent of Edward's transvestitism until they made the movie. She didn't know why her Angora stre- sweaters were being stretched out. Uh, and she said that when she saw the movie, she was very shocked by how he used the story of their lives in the movie. I'm not sure how she didn't pick that up while she was making the movie. <laughs> um, so she left him. Well, she left him a few years later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, she hung out for that long? I didn't know that. She left him because he promised her the lead role in Bride of the Monster and then gave it to someone else. And why did they that other person get the role in Bride of the Monster? Because, because he thought that she would be able to bankroll the production. And apparently there was a misunderstanding and she didn't have any money. What did you think of Glenn or Glenda? Because I've seen it a million times. I really like it. Um, I feel like it's... A, you know how when you watch a film you have certain expectations and once you watch it for the first time you can go back and revisit it knowing what's coming? Mm-hmm. And because Glenn and Glenda has such a fractured structure where you're like, what is going on? I feel that now that I've seen it for the first time I can go back and really enjoy 
enjoy it. Especially like I talked about this at the beginning, the passion that Edward shows for his work. Mm-hmm. You can feel the inner turmoil that he has making this film. I actually feel like if Edward had only made Glenn or Glenda, he might be remembered as not a great director, but uh, a, an idiosyncratic personal voice. I absolutely agree there, with you. There's something about it. It almost feels like a Kenneth Anger movie. Uh, <laughs> and it's interesting. It's just this kind of weird dog's breakfast where it, at, in the first half, it feels like one of those pseudo documentaries that they were making in the fifties. Uh, one of those white coders mm-hmm. uh, that's ostensibly an educational film about sexual diversity, but everything's kind of just off a little bit. Yeah, one of those movies that they just really wanted to show you a childbirth or like yeah. a naked woman or something like yeah, that. But this one, it quickly goes off the rails because the narrator starts saying things like, look at this man wearing his hat. Did you know that the hat cuts off blood circulation to the brain? That's why there's so much baldness now. <laughs> it's like, wait, that's not true. But he leads that into, but women, they wear the nice frilly hats. They're not going bald. And then it leads to the immortal line, little mess female, you should be mighty pleased about what you get to wear. Uh, and then, so it starts in this sort of like pseudo documentary way. And then it turns into a weird surrealist Freudian dream movie. Uh, and it's got elements of kind of like melodrama and I don't know, it, it, it's, it's unclassifiable. There's no other movie like it. <laughs> and I think that's probably to its strengths. If it had been a more straightforward exploitation potboiler, I don't think people would remember it as fondly as mm-hmm. just the way that it is. It's so weird mm-hmm. because like when people think of Plan 9 from Outer Space, they mostly think about how cheap it looks and how inept they feel that it's made. Mm-hmm. While Glenn and Glenda has this individualism that doesn't exist in other movies with that kind of subject matter. It apparently didn't do very well on first release because uh, it was too it was too lowbrow and, and too kind of had too much sex stuff in it for legitimate theaters, but it was too weird and arty for the grindhouses. So it, it, it had trouble getting bookings. So the other movie that we watched was Plan 9 from Outer Space. Now, we know there's a whole bunch of movies between those, Bride of the Monster, Jailbait. Did he make the Sinister Urge before he Plan He made it 9? after, yeah. And Plan 9 is the most famous one. Mm-hmm. And... Also famous because Bela Lugosi it appears in outtakes in the film. Right. Uh, Edward had some footage of Bela Lugosi lying around that he'd shot. You know, Lugosi walking through a cemetery with a, with his cape. Lugosi crying next to a grave. Lugosi leaving a house. Uh, Maybe like two or three minutes in total. And after Bela Lugosi died, he fashioned this movie out of it and he actually had more footage of bella lugosi that he was going to make another film i think it was like ghoul on the moon or something (laughs) like that and supposedly when he opened the film can it had all emulsified and was just gone yeah too bad (laughs) what would you do if someone said like there's a copy of ghoul on the moon out there that edward shot and edited but he never told anyone i would watch it you know just the other day when i was uh getting ready for this podcast I I did a double take because I checked Amazon and his long lost porn film, The Only House in Town, was just released on DVD. Even so, though people say it's really bad. People say it's really bad, but what does that mean I in the like, context of Listen, Edward? I like all of his movies, even the bad ones. They all they all add another piece to the Edward puzzle. So I ordered it immediately. Can't wait to watch it. But Plan 9 from Outer Space, I didn't watch it for a long time, and the first time I watched it, I found it really dull. Well, you're a Philistine. <laughs> And because not much happens in it. And all the stuff that people remember and laugh about is really contained mostly in the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie. Yes, there's a big uh, slow stretch in the middle, like at the Pentagon and, you know, wandering around the cemetery. Uh, But 
listen, the good parts are really good. Right? Like, what are the good parts? Oh, come on. Like, uh, the, the flying saucers, the, uh... <laughs> I'm throwing this to you. I'm, I'm, this uh, is not a genuine question. Well, the, the graves fallen over. The, uh, the Dr. Tom Mason, uh, Edward's chiropractor who doubles for Bella Lugosi holding a cape over his face. Uh, the iconic, these are the iconic moments of bad cinema. And why do you think it's existed this long that people keep going back to it when there's so many films so much worse than this? Well, I mean, the, the Tim Burton movie, uh, has helped. I, I, I mean, there are movies worse than this, but, like, this movie's very watchable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, it's fun, and it's got stuff that's easy to laugh at. I think there's also... This movie and all of Edward's uh, movies have this dreamlike quality to it. I was talking to our mutual friend, Marco Balaban, a friend of the podcast, Marco Balaban, about this, and he said that the the cemetery in, in Plan 9 feels like a dream where everything's... It looks like a cemetery, but everything's just off. <laughs> you mean the gravestones are tiny? <laughs> yeah, and and they're you know the bushes are fake, and there's this smoke. Like it, there's a, a dreamlike quality to the film. <laughs> Didn't I say I was like? It's like Japanese no theater <laughs> with <laughs> yeah. the black background, and you know settings are implied more than um, designed. So, somebody said once that. Uh, the special effects in Plan 9 from Outer Space are symbolic special effects. <laughs> like, you see the flying saucer. Like, Edward's not so stupid that he thinks it actually looks like a flying saucer. But it's like, he puts that there. It's like, this is this is what I would have if I had the budget. Like, imagine your own special effects here. Edward, I don't think, was stupid. I think that he was more deluded. <laughs> when you read interviews with him in the book Nightmare of Ecstasy... Mm-hmm. Uh, great book, which you should definitely check a, out a, if you have any yeah, interest of Edward. A great biography of Edward, which was the basis of the Tim Burton movie. He's pretty upfront about talking about, oh yeah, that scene was really fake. Yeah, we kind of half-assed that. But he seems to think that his scripts were great and oh. that the movies were great. And they were just hampered a little bit by certain compromises he had to make um, because of the budget. At one point, uh, a filmmaker tells a story about how Edward saved his movie, where he had a bear attack scene. And the filmmaker was like, I don't know how to save this. And Edward was like, all right. We get a bear rug, like not a fake bear suit, but a bear rug. We throw it on a dude. Let's go film in the park. And then you insert into the footage. And the filmmaker's like, it totally worked. He completely saved that scene. And it's like, wait, what? Are we talking about the same Ed Wood? Ed Wood is clearly a very resourceful filmmaker as long as it, you don't expect it to like have any continuity or make sense. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to have one of those minds that goes, these lines make sense. Like, this sounds good to me. Like, he, he doesn't feel like a lazy filmmaker. And especially when you read some of his co-workers talk about how passionate, how we would workshop lines and practice them and have rehearsals. It just made sense to him. The lines that he writes, like, they're so, they're also kind of pompous and overwritten. It really feels like the work of a man who is very confident in his ideas and loves to hear himself talk. Uh, his last movie, which is a hardcore porn film called The Young Marrieds, it has this really ponderous narration in it, uh, and it has lines like, Let us be patient, tender, wise, and forgiving in this strange task of living. For if we fail each other, each will be gray driftwood lap- lapsing into the abyss. <laughs> like, what does it even mean? <laughs> it means what you want it to mean, Will. Yeah. All right, so Plan 9 from Outer Space. So I watched Plan 9 from Outer Space again today with Will. I still found it kind of dull. Well, you're an idiot. But what I love is Night of the Ghouls. Love Ostensibly it. a sequel to Plan 9 from Outer Space that Ed Wood 
said wasn't released in his lifetime. Yeah, uh, it was only it was in the uh, the lab basically during his whole lifetime because he couldn't pay the bill to get the film developed, and I guess no no distributors had any interest in releasing it because it's inept. Like it- so, Plan Night from Outer Space is about aliens who want to destroy humanity. Because humanity is going to create, what's it called? The Solaroid? The, the, the Solar Manite, <laughs> which other people pronounce the Solaronite and the Solar Knight. <laughs> there are various mispronunciations of it. It's a bomb that can explode the sunlight itself. And if you explode the sunlight, it will create a chain reaction that will explode everywhere that the sunlight reaches, which is the whole universe. Night of the Ghouls, as a sequel to Plan 9 from Outer Space... And is, a sequel to Bride of the Monster. ...is obviously about a haunted house <laughs> <laughs> and some ghouls running around. So it's a sequel to The Bride of the Monster, where Bela Lugosi played the mad doctor at the old Willow's place who did his experiments. Uh, Edward was kind of like the original Marvel Cinematic Universe, where he would have... <laughs> characters uh recur from movie to movie night of the ghouls is about uh duke moore the incredibly uncharismatic duke moore plays uh uh, a ghoul hunter yeah a a ghoul hunter who's kind of hired by the police on the down low like they don't (laughs) like it to get out he's a ghoul hunter uh and he's to investigate some strange sightings at the old willows place which was where the mad doctor used to perform his experiments, but it's since been rebuilt and is now the home of a uh, carnival swami. And uh, don't forget, we have our favorite cop from Plan 9 from Outer Space. Kelton the Cop. (laughs) Who's getting scared from all those shadows out there. Kelton the Cop um, appears in three Ed Wood movies. He's the comedy relief. He's played by Paul Marco who I once interviewed really? towards towards the very end of his life. Yeah, I, I spoke to him on the phone. He's kind of like a uh, he's kind of like a Don Knotts type. I'll tell you a funny story about Paul Marco later, but let's talk about uh, Night of the Ghouls. <laughs> I love Night of the Ghouls. It's probably the most surrealistic film of all of Edward's pictures that I watched, mm-hmm. and that's what I loved so much about it. Like at one point they have a séance and they keep cutting to like a skeleton floating in the in the air and like a trumpet going off. Well, they go into this house, the old Willis place, and it's clear that you know, this house doesn't geographically make any sense. There are so many like it feels like this bizarre space that was constructed on a stu- on a bunch of different studios. It kind of feels like Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's all this Altman-esque tapestry of characters where it feels at the beginning of the film that you're like, is this like volume five? Like, what am I missing? Oh, and also Tor Johnson, the Swedish wrestler, returns as Lobo, <laughs> the big monster from Bride of the Monster. And I love the way Lobo was introduced in Night of the Ghouls. The camera starts at his feet and then it slowly goes up his body. And the narrator, Criswell, says, uh, but something else was still remaining from the mad doctor's experiments. And then you see Tor Johnson's face and it's like Edward expects you to be like, oh my God, Lobo's back. (laughs) (laughs) That beloved character from Bride of the Monster is back. (laughs) Night of the Ghouls is a movie. I've said that his movies feel like they were stitched together out of a lot of disparate elements. And this movie, more than any of them. It feels like it was cut together from like nine different films. Like the uh, Godfrey Ho, who's often known as the Ed Wood of Hong Kong. Yeah. Who would take like four different unfinished films and edit them all together and have like Richard Harrison playing a ninja show up and be like, yes, hello on the phone to another character from another movie. Yeah. It's very much like that. Like, uh, so early in night of the ghouls, uh, just as the plot has been set up, the narrator Criswell says, 
Your daily newspapers, radio, and television warn you about juvenile delinquency. And then there's about, you know, two, three minutes of juvenile delinquency footage. Sometimes juvenile delinquency seems like the major problem of our era. And you think, why are we hearing so much about juvenile delinquency? And it's because, well, Ed Wood had a movie about juvenile delinquency that he never finished. But he had the footage, so why not put it here? Or Seamless. Or Duke Moore uh, is wearing a tuxedo in the movie. And it's because he's been called in. He was supposed to go to the opera, but he's been called in. He can't go to the opera now. He has to investigate the old Willows place. But the only reason he's wearing a tuxedo is because Edward had this short film where Duke Moore was wearing a tuxedo that he wanted to stitch into the movie seamlessly. (laughs) Yeah, the movie doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, but that's why it's so much fun. I think it's a beautiful film. (laughs) Because there's so much crazy nonsense going on throughout its running time. I think you should watch Bride of the Monster, Plan 9, and Night of the Ghouls like all together so you can see the evolution of Kelton the Cop. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Ed Wood style. <laughs> it's Kelton the Cop. And like Night of the Ghouls is definitely, I think, his most threadbare film. Mm-hmm. Even more so than threadbare of his non-pornographic films. <laughs> yes, because we can get into that. Yeah, we can. But first, here's a funny story about Paul Marco. So Paul Marco, Kelton the Cop, hilarious comedy relief. Never quite made it as a star, of course. Uh, So he got a job. He worked for many years in the prop department at Paramount. And then in the 80s, you know, as the Ed Wood revival was happening, uh, Joe Dante was making a movie at Paramount. And Paul Marco learned that Joe Dante was an Ed Wood fan. So he like came up to him and said, hey, I hear you're an Ed Wood fan. Do you you know Kelton the Cop? He's like, oh, yeah, I love Kelton the Cop. He goes, that's me. (laughs) And then and then Joe Dante goes, oh, my God, you're Kelton the Cop. You you should do something with that. Like you should go on the convention circuit or something. You're a cult star. And Paul Marco interpreted this as I'll quit my job, my great job at Paramount with benefits and a pension. And uh put all my savings into reviving the Kelton Lacotte brand. So, <laughs> and it worked out for him, and he lived a happy and productive life. Yeah, so he started the Paul Marco fan club. Uh, he was the president and founding member of it. Uh, maybe the only member. Uh, <laughs> How are you not a Kelton Lacotte fan club member? Well, I would have been if, if it was up and active <laughs> when I discovered it. He he started doing pitches for like, oh, we could have a Kelton Lacotte game show, a Kelton Lacotte... <laughs> cartoon show uh he a lot of his savings went into making i love kelton the cop balloons and i love kelton the cop t-shirts so if you're on ebay next time see if you can find any vintage kelton merch well that's a pretty sad story i don't know if it's a funny story but that's a good segue into the rest of edward's career yeah so what what you just read nightmare of ecstasy will saw me reading it a few days ago and i'm like man this book is so much fun uh all the stories are interesting it feels like it should be 400 pages (laughs) and he went whoa watch out the last two chapters things get pretty rough and i'm like i know he died of alcoholism you know, I'm ready for it. And oh boy. <laughs> oh, it's dark. Uh, Ed, the, the last 20 years of Edward's life are, a con- are just a spiral of alcoholism. Uh, he made his living in his last 20 years more as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you said, he was very prolific. So uh, his editors used to say that he could write like a novel in a day. He wouldn't re-edit. He'd put it all in the typewriter right away and then hand it off and these books would be published. And they were all, you know, dirty books. Yeah. Um, I think you mentioned a few titles was like... Uh, Killer and Drag, uh, Let Me Die and Drag, uh, Raped in the Grass. And he supposedly did not like writing these novels. Yeah. Some of them, like, you know, if you're an insane fan like myself, you could read them and glean certain autobiographical elements from them. He did some books that were like, uh, 
studies in in sexuality you know which were basically just excuses to print dirty pictures by you know making it look like a textbook but he wrote one book called the history of censorship in the motion pictures which is really fun to read because it's clear he did no research (laughs) and he's just kind of going by vague memories because people said that the only way that edward could write would be drunk off his ass yes so he like he was a really hardcore alcoholic he also uh, in later years wrote a lot of screenplays for kind of softcore porn movies. Who Can Forget, Orgy of the Dead. Which is the best of them, I think. It's it's like, it's really fun. He didn't direct it, but it feels like he directed it. Um, I read that it was based on a novel by Ed Wood, which is not true. He wrote the novel after the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the Orgy of the Dead is uh, the amazing Criswell, the L.A. psychic, um, plays like the emperor of the underworld or something. And you basically see a bunch of striptease acts in the graveyard interspersed with weird Criswell dialogue. And a werewolf. And a werewolf as comedy relief. It has a great (laughs) line where he goes, well, it's clear Criswell is drunk during this whole movie. So... In the in the opening, he's doing his little intro to the camera, and he's reading uh, the cue cards, and his delivery is so bad because he's just reading this for the first time. He's like, in the past, I've related the unreal and shown it to be more than a fact. <laughs> <laughs> so what other movies did he write later in his career? Because people were contacting him. The weird thing about Ed Wood is, I remember reading that Kathy Wood said that she wished he had been around when he really got popular later on, Kathy Woods being his wife. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was that even right before he died, there was a little cult around him. Well, yeah, not long after he made Plan 9 from Outer Space, it it either fell into the public domain or it got sold to television. So it was on Los Angeles television all the time, like at four in the morning. And so his friends would always get phone calls from him at four in the morning being like, wake up, plan nine's on. <laughs> and even filmmakers like Fertile and Ray before Edward's death contacted him wanting uh, Ed to write a screenplay for him. And that would have been like 1978, the year he died. So, and John Landis, the famous director of Animal House, met Edward At a party. Yeah, like a forest... Forrest J. Ackerman brought Ed Wood in and, and apparently John Lance was like, oh, you're Ed Wood. You made Bride of the Monster uh, with Bela Lugosi. And Ed Wood was apparently flabbergasted that John Landis knew who he was. And uh, Forrest J. Ackerman says that Ed Wood would call him at night all the time, just <laughs> gibbering at him, and he would have no idea what he was talking about. The, Nightmare, the book Nightmare of Ecstasy gives the impression that Ed Wood was, like, even towards the end of his life, was very delusional about, oh, yep, I'm going to be making another picture next year. The day the mummies danced. Uh, <laughs> and, you know... Nobody would have bankrolled that in the 70s. And if you read that final chapter of Nightmare and Ecstasy, just prepare yourself. Because, whoa boy, living in what seems like a crack house, he and his wife fighting physically all the time. Mm -hmm. And finally, Edward dying after being evicted from his apartment in his friend's, I guess, um, bedroom, Mm -hmm. screaming, I'm having a heart attack. And his wife yelling back, ah, just fucking stop it. Stop being a baby. (laughs) Yeah. And then a few hours later, they realized he actually was having a heart attack. And well, he was dead. So in addition to writing softcore movies for Stephen Apostoloff, he, uh, Edward directed a number of hardcore porn films in the very early days of porn. He directed, I think, the first 15 or so loops for Swedish erotica. Which were loops that were in a machine, and you put money in to go watch them, and it'd be like hardcore loops just for yeah. you. Or you could order it for your own home. Swedish erotica, which became a very big brand in the porn world. So, but the first 15 or so are him, and so he, he would have worked with, like, John Holmes 
uh, and all, all the big porn stars of the day. <laughs> he also directed a couple of porn features, uh, one of them called Necromania, which is kind of a, a haunted house porn movie, which I love it because it feels like an Ed Wood movie. Oh, does it? I mean, that's the most important yeah, thing, Yeah, right? it, it has his dialogue. Somebody references Bela Lugosi. Uh, it has kind of some of the tropes of an Ed Wood movie, so, it, I, so I kind of like it, even though nobody else likes it. <laughs> the uh, I, I mean, I'm a sucker for anything. Are you going to start does. your Necromania uh, fan club? No. <laughs> Quit your job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Invest in Necromania um, t-shirts and balloons. Mm-hmm. Do you think, having read Nightmare of Ecstasy, do you think so he died in 78, and then the Golden Turkey Awards came out in 1980, and the Medveds basically spent the 80s touring around the U.S. with their uh, World's Worst Film Festival, making fun of Ed Wood, and like, people like Warren Beatty came out and saw it. I Diane don't think Keaton. he would like that, though. He talks about people saying that his movies were the worst of all time, and he would get sometimes like very violent and physical, mm-hmm. especially when he was drunk. Right. So to, like towards the end of his life, people were starting to write biographies of Bela Lugosi, where they would write things like, and then he made these these terrible movies with, with Ed Wood, and Ed Wood would be like, these people, they never even met Lugosi. I knew Lugosi. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but you don't think he would have appreciated just the recognition? Maybe a little bit, but I don't think that he would have enjoyed people making fun of him. Mm-hmm. Like, And that's what, in those that 10-year span, is what happened, is people were just laughing at him, not with him, right? Would he have liked the Tim Burton movie, do you think? I think he would have liked the Tim Burton movie. And he would have probably been like, they did not represent me well at all. Yeah, I mean, the Tim Burton movie is plays fast and loose with the facts, which is fine. What did you think of... Did you see the Billy Zane starring adaptation of the Ed Wood script, I Woke Up Early the Day I Died? Yes, I did. This was a movie that was made a few years after the Tim Burton movie where somebody somebody discovered Ed Wood's last script. Which was an all-silent film. So you don't even have his dialogue in it. Uh, and it has an incredible cast. It, Billy Zane stars in it. It was his first movie after Titanic. <laughs> Can you believe that? That movie played Midnight Madness. Yeah, right. Uh, Colin, if you're listening, uh, I'd like to hear how it went over. Uh, and what do you think of it? Uh, well, first of all, the cast it had uh, Sandra Bernhard, uh, Tippi Hedren, Christina Ricci, Vampira, uh, t- John Ritter, a ton of other kind of B-list kind of weird people. Uh, I kind of like it. it. It feels, you know, it's not one of my favorite Edward things, but it has a, a weird energy to it. And it it has it has that kind of seedy underbelly of L.A. vibe to it. I think I'd just like to wrap things up uh, by saying, let us be patient, tender, wise, and forgiving in this strange task of living. For if we fail each other, each will be gray driftwood lapsing into the abyss. That's some very um, deep words. Thank well, you for sharing them. What are we doing next week, Justin? We're doing Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> Never a, heard of him. A director that will went, Sure. I guess. (laughs) I've been kind of obsessed with Steven Soderbergh for a long time, even though a lot of his movies, I'm like, eh, I don't really like them. To the point that the movie Haywire, which was this action film that he made that I was really excited about to see, I hated it when I saw it in cinemas. I hated it so much. And then I saw it on video and I went, I still hate it. (laughs) And then I watched it again. I said, okay, I like it now. There's very few directors that will give me the impetus to go and watch this movie more than once trying to get more out of it. Interesting. I like Steven Soderbergh. I'm in favor of Steven Soderbergh. Uh, He doesn't mean a lot to me. I will take this as an educational opportunity. I think 
that it's also his working method that uh, something that really interests me is that he's the all-around package where he didn't come from money, he didn't come from people in the industry. He made a little film called Sex Lies Videotape that won Sundance that famously beat Do the Right Thing. I can't. And at the time, I remember Steven Soderbergh going, man, Spike Lee's really mad at me. I'd be mad too (laughs) if I had directed Do the Right Thing. (laughs) And he went on to make a career where he just really pursued his passions and whether you like his filmmaking style or not is something we'll discuss in the actual episode but the fact that he writes directs shoots edits and he doesn't just edit straightforwardly he plays with his films trying to find the best versions possible there's a funny story don't shoot your wad now justin (laughs) (laughs) right i just need to finish this there's a funny story where uh paul schrader was directing a movie called the canyons and steven soderbergh watched a rough cut and he went give it to me for 24 hours and i'll give you something good and paul schrader was so angry at that idea and that's the, the I maybe know. Paul Schrader should have given it to him. <laughs> and that's something that really like fascinates me about him. So that's what we're going to be talking about next week. What you have just heard was based on sworn testimony. Can you prove it didn't happen? Hey, don't forget to go on iTunes and give us five stars. Oh yeah, and hey, write into us at uh, what's our email? The uh, Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Sorry, is that the Important Cinema Club? Podcast? No, I think it's just Important Cinema Club Podcast oh, at right. gmail. I know that we made fun of Peter Kaplowski when we read his letter, but we won't we'll, we won't make fun of your letter. Please don't make me look Will Sloan in the eye when he goes. Do we have any letters this week? And I have to go. No. Yeah. <laughs> My name's Justin the Clue. My name's Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hey, want to hear my impression of Criswell? Go. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are bringing you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent, my friend. Can your heart stand the shocking fact about grave robbers from outer space? How many chicks did you pick up with that one? (laughs) You don't want to (laughs) know. Zero. Did you have to do the whole speech? (laughs) You weren't reading off cue cards or anything, so that wasn't really, like, authentic. No, but did you notice that I was able to even master, like, the pauses when he was reading from the cue card? I did not notice that, but you know what? One day you'll find a woman who'll be very happy that you can.